Well, 10 years ago, we were not having nearly as much fun as we are this summer. How many of you could think back in your mind and think, that was the year, the not good year? Do you have it? Does everyone have, can, can you think of a year that was the year? The, the year that, you know, the diagnosis, the layoff, something with kids, something with marriage, that sort of thing. We all have the year. Or if you don't, then you probably haven't lived very long. And we hope that you would enjoy youth ministry down the hall. <laughs> um, well, Rick and I were having that year 10 years ago this summer, and I hope that that remains our year. We haven't yet, we've yet to have a year that has superseded that year in trouble, and we'd love to keep it that way. So 10 years ago, my job ended at our denomination's headquarters, which um, many of you know the story. That followed um, our pastor's Jared Nan's layoff. So um, that was a story in itself, and many of you have heard it, but that was difficult. Um, Rick's mom's cancer, which she had battled on and off for 20 years, um, it came back as metastasized breast cancer throughout her body, and it looked like we wouldn't have long with her. And in fact, she died quicker than any of us expected, just 10 days after Katerina, our oldest child, was born. And uh, of course, I want to pause, take a caveat, and say Katerina was the bright light in an otherwise difficult year, and a, and you know that wonderful things in life don't take the pain out of the difficult things, and difficult things don't take the joy out of the wonderful things, but it was still a painful time. In the midst of all... Oh, Rick left a long-term job. He had been managing a profitable bank in Los Angeles. He decided it was time to go back to ministry. He went to work for an inner-city ministry, and it was great for three months, and then it turned difficult and awkward and uh, bad for everyone involved. And in the midst of all of this, I was adjusting to life staying home with an infant, and I was attempting to lead a college ministry at our church plant. I don't recommend that you do those two things at the same time. And at my most vulnerable time, full of postpartum emotions, there were just some leaders that were pretty jealous and a little bit backbiting, and they, they turned a bunch of my students against me. Tendence began to dwindle. Bad things were being said. This new mama was feeling lots of emotions, and like a, it was a big personal failure. About that time, Rick and I were asked to consider an opportunity leading a church um, it was, a, it was a very small nearby church, but a lot of things looked like it could be a good fit for us. There was one problem. We had made a two-year commitment to serving at the church plant that we were at. And at the time, that had seemed like a God idea, like a Holy Spirit idea. Well, yeah, we should give two years for sure. It'll probably be 10 years. It's easy to say two years. But right now, we weren't sure that that was God at all. And we were wondering what was the next step we should take at this really difficult spot. So we've all been in tough spots, and I am not naive enough to think that there aren't many of you who may be in a tough spot right now. It might be your job. It might be your living situation that maybe just be like nails down the chalkboard for some reason. It might be your extended family or immediate family. It might be a school situation. I don't know what it is for you, but if you haven't been there, excuse me, if you aren't there right now, you have been there. And unfortunately, many of us will probably walk through these, these spots again. However, you're in good company. I think everyone in this room has been there. And the Apostle Paul, we've been following his journeys throughout the summer in the book of Acts, he's been there too. He is in a tough spot as we pick up his story today in Acts 18. He's been run out of town by the business people in Philippi. 
He had people who should have been on his side but were jealous um, drive him out of town in Thessalonica. He was received with indifference in Athens, and that may have been the hardest for him. Athens was the first city that Paul preached in that really nobody cared that much about his message. He had a few converts, but not the kind of response that he was used to. It's kind of like Billy Graham showing up and nobody wants to, nobody wants to listen. Paul was used to people listening, and in Athens, they didn't listen. He was shaken. He comes to Corinth, and Corinth, we can see it on the map, um, was a bit of a distance from Athens. It lay on the isthmus that connects the north part of Greece and the south part of Greece. And because of that, it was a pivotal spot for trade. Um, we, ships came in from Italy on the west, made the, the four-mile crossland journey right by Corinth, and continued on to the Black Sea and to Asia on the east, or Goods could come the other way. Because of that, Corinth was a big city. It was an influential city because people moved through and went to other parts of the world. It, the ideas that took root in Corinth would spread. If there was a disease in Corinth, that would spread because people came through and went to all parts of the world. So it could be a great place for the church to grow. But it also would be a terrible place to fail. The stakes were high. Would it be a place the church could thrive and reach west to Italy and east to Asia? Or will Paul's attempts end in failure again? Let's read in Acts 18. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue trying to convince Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they, and the passage makes clear that this is a small, this is a group of the Jewish people in the synagogue because some enjoyed what Paul was saying, opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go and preach to the Gentiles. And then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, a Jewish man, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you. For many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. So the first thing that sticks out to me in this passage is the first thing that Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, notes for us. Make good friends and keep them. It says that Paul found um, Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jews from Rome. This is really interesting to me. There's a lot to be said. Paul spent more time in Corinth than almost any other city that we follow in his journeys in the New Testament. But the most, the first thing that Paul wants us, I mean, excuse me, that Luke wants us to know is that Paul found good friends there. It's the first significant thing. And I think that that highlights that friendship is important to God. Priscilla and Aquila 
are founding, probably founding members of the church in Rome. The passage does not tell us that Paul shared Jesus with them for the first time, and they had just been kicked out of Rome. In AD 49, the emperor Claudius Caesar kicked all the Jewish people out of Rome, and um, some of the records that we have said that it was because of their leader, Crestus, spelled with, a, with an E. But most um, historians assume that that was a misspelling, a misunderstanding of the word for Christ. So all the Jewish people got lumped in with what was going on with Christianity. The Romans didn't like it, and they got kicked out of Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila had possibly even been Christians longer than Paul. And Paul finds them, and he, he, he finds out that they're going to be trustworthy friends for him. They share a trade. Um, Jewish rabbis like Paul always had a trade that they worked with their hands, and Paul's was pent. Was pent was tent making. And so they made, they worked together because they shared this affinity, this trade, and he was able to stay with them. What I love about this passage is that the first thing Paul does is he finds good friends. Tough times create the best friendships. Priscilla and Aquila and Paul had something else in common. They all knew what it was like to be persecuted and kicked out of a city. And how many of you can th- think of some of your closest friends. How many of you would say that you had a, have had a bonding experience that was pretty difficult at the time? They, st- they stuck with you. You went through something difficult together. Your closest friends. Um, I think many of us would, would probably say that. For just an obvious example, when you're a new parent, a lot of my close friends came from that desperate time when I was learning what it meant to be a parent. New mom, new dad. You need someone to tell you that you're not crazy and you kind of bond over that. There's the friends that keep with you when you get laid off, right? Because at that time, even I remember at the time that we were going through stuff um, at the denomination headquarters, kind of weeds off the acquaintances when you move, when you get laid off, and the people that stick with you, you find those are those friends that, you can, that really have your back. Tough times cause us to see who, where those trustworthy friendships are. People in recovery often find those friendships are ones that can really be counted on. So Paul starts in Corinth by establishing a home base of people he can trust because that will make all the difference in a tough season. You know, it's a good idea to find a primary care doctor before you're desperately ill. Would you say that? When you're desperately ill is not a good time to try to figure out where you should go to the doctor. It's good to kind of have that all set up. And I think in our busy, busy lives... Sometimes we don't feel the need for friendship as much as maybe we should because our lives and our calendars are so full of people but not necessarily quality connections. And one thing that I am challenged by in this passage is to make time for friendships. Rick and I lately, you know, there's, we have many, many acquaintances, and we have been challenged lately to schedule time in our calendars to invest in our friendships. Sometimes that feels like a luxury, like, well, there's so many th- I, I should be working. I need to be doing this. They need me to serve at the PTA. Well, I want you to give yourself permission. Invest in your friendships. And if you don't have ones now, um, Look for people who could be those, that trustworthy home base for you. You know, here at church, at Evergreen, we 
think that having great friendships is part of what helps us follow Jesus and to stay strong in tough times and that people just need friendships. But we can't, of course, make anyone be friends. We're not like friendship matchmakers. But we do try to provide opportunities for friendships to grow. And there's some things even this month. Next week on Tuesday the 11th for moms with young kids, we have a moms meetup at 53rd Street Park. There's information in the e-blast and available in, in the foyer. Um, the men's small groups will be starting up again in the fall. The women's Bible study will start up again in the fall, and there are small groups in English and in Spanish. I, there's a book discussion for women on August 22nd as well. It's a really fun book, details to follow, because I know that not all of you are moms of young kids, and we still want to be friends, so we want to give a time to drink some coffee and talk about a fun book. So hopefully, if you are thinking, sitting here thinking, I need some friends that have my back. I hope that maybe some of these opportunities would be a time to connect with other people who love Jesus and can have your back and uh, help you grow in your faith walk. Secondly, Paul assumed the best about people but faced the worst. It's interesting to me, talks about Paul, um, every Sabbath he was found at the synagogue talking to Jewish people and to Greek people. Now, I think I have this tendency to think of Paul as like some sort of Christian superhero, bionic apostle. We know the end of the story that what he did mattered a lot in, in history. He was part of just the launching of, of the church. But he doesn't know that. It's kind of like we can be as parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents with kids. We're in the middle of the story. My parents like to say, we got to wait till our cookies come out of the oven. <laughs> We can't judge it right now. And I know I feel that way with my kids. Like, I sure hope that things turn out for me in lots of days. It doesn't seem like they are. And Paul was in the middle of his story. And he's not nearly as confident as sometimes we like to picture him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about this time in Corinth. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my teaching were very plain. He's talking about anxiety. He's talking about fear of rejection and fear of failure. He's come off of what felt like failures in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Philippi. And he's not sure that what he's doing is working for people. He's not sure that, there's ha- that it's having good results. He's afraid. And that's not the Paul that I usually picture. And it makes me think, wow, we have more in common than I thought we did because that's how I would respond. But despite of what was going on inside of him, Paul gives his best. Something important happens. Um, Silas and Timothy come back from checking up on that church in Thessalonica where there was a lot of persecution. And they say, the church is doing great. There has been a lot of opposition, but they're growing and they, they love God and they think of you fondly, Paul, and they're telling people of the news about Jesus. And for Paul, it's like one of those moments when you catch your kids doing what you told them to do without being asked. And you're just like, oh, maybe what I do every day actually matters. Maybe they'll turn out to be civilized human beings. You know, he's like, what I do matters. And he is given new energy for his ministry in, in Corinth. And then um, it says that he 
um, was also, he's also given a financial gift from the church in Thessalonica. So he can take time off from tent making and focus full time on telling people about Jesus. Some versions say he was occupied with the word. And that is an interesting word. It means a burden. Paul wanted, Paul was, had an internal pressure to do his absolute best work in telling people um, why he, why he believed Jesus was the Messiah, what he felt God, what he, what God was doing in the world. He was telling them about Jesus's resurrection. He was trying to make it clear and show from Old Testament scriptures how it lined up. He gave his best, despite the fact um, things haven't always gone well for him recently. <clears throat> but he comes to a crossroads in his ministry, and like Kenny Rogers says, he knows when to walk away. The Greek word here is blasphemeo. It says that there was a group in the synagogue that began to oppose and insult him. Now, this is not um, casual skepticism. In fact, Luke, when he talks about people that ask a lot of questions about what Paul is saying, talks about them in glowing language. They were noble. They asked questions. They went home to see for themselves if this was true. I think um, the Bible repeatedly honors asking questions, trying to understand, wanting to find out. This is where, this is not that. What happens with this group is it gets personal. They're not just, now we're not talking about ideas. Now we are saying, I hate you and I want to mock you and what you're saying. And the conversation is no longer productive. It has gotten mean. And we could take a lesson from what Paul does at this point because he has been giving his best with all the hope that the Holy Spirit's working in people's lives. But when people say, no, I don't want to hear it. And when it gets mean and when it gets personal and when it gets abusive, Paul, said, Paul respects that decision. He actually makes a really dramatic gesture. He shakes out his clothes, which means you have to take your own consequences. I'm responsible for me. And he says, your blood be on your own heads. I don't know if I would try that at home. It's, it's an optional part of drawing boundaries with people. But um, this does bring to mind that I think sometimes Christians overvalue nice. Not that we shouldn't be kind. The Bible talks a lot about being kind. But that tacky nice, that passive aggressive nice is not something we're instructed to be. We're instructed to tell the truth and be respectful and kind to people. But sometimes we think being like Jesus is letting people treat us bad over and over and over again. And put in, no, we shouldn't fight, fight fire with fire. But, you know, if somebody keeps um, criticizing, if you have a family member, an extended family member that keeps criticizing your decisions, don't keep telling them about your decisions. Don't put yourself in that position. Don't keep hitting your head against the brick wall. Truth is important. Kindness is important. But drawing good boundaries is also important. And I have made mistakes in this category, friends. A dear friend of mine a few years ago was suddenly really distant and withdrawn. I had no way of knowing that she was sucked into an addiction issue in her life. And having not really had experience with addiction, I did not really put the pieces together. So instead, I tried to be nice, really nice. And I just kept doing all the work for both of us in the relationship. I kept showing up. I pestered her. What's wrong with you? Why don't you want me anymore? I love you. And, um, I didn't give her a chance to miss me at all. I mean, she couldn't have missed me. I was there all the time. This went on for like a year and a half. 
I'm not saying I was the, the brightest bulb on the chandelier about this situation. Just kept going on. And I, I, I look back on that situation and I realize that if I had respected the distance that she was creating with me, that she actually might have missed me because we were really good friends. And it might have drawn her to think about her choices earlier. Might, she might even miss Jesus a little bit more. But I was pushing him on her all the time along with my own, myself. And so as I have gotten a little bit older and I hope a little bit wiser, I'm realizing that God is only going to ask me about my own decisions. Was I kind? Was I respectful? Did I tell the truth? He's not going to ask me about even my own children's decisions. I'm learning to let them, you know, reap their consequences as well. I hate unmade beds. It is really hard for me to leave that bed unmade and make them pay the price when they forget to do it in the morning. But I'm recovering, okay? I'm recovering in my codependence about unmade beds. (laughs) There's a harsh truth in life, you guys. Some people just don't like you or me. What's with that? And we're probably going to do better to spend our time and energy on people that do. And so a final word of advice, don't try to win over the haters. You are not the jackass whisperer. (laughs) Well, hopefully if you remember nothing else, you remember that. And so as we begin to maybe weed out a little dead weight in our lives of of time-sucking relationships that are not going anywhere, we're not bringing them closer to Jesus, um, we're just getting exhausted, then we might have a little more time on our hands. And we might have time to look for God at work where we don't expect him. I am a chronic key loser, okay? It's gotten a little bit better as I've gotten older, but not a lot. I also lose my phone, but thank God that someone invented Find Your iPhone, right? I mean, I love that app. And then, unfortunately, I don't have a Find My Keys app. If someone could take care of that, that would be really, really helpful to me. But at any rate, I have learned something about finding my keys. When I have looked in the office where they should be on the key hook, and I've looked in my purse, and I've looked on the kitchen counter, and this is where they are supposed to be, I have to look where they are not supposed to be, like, you know on the top of a bookshelf or on my kid's dresser or something weird like that or locked in the car. So, you know, we don't just keep looking in the same places they're supposed to be over and over again. And for Paul in Corinth, it was the obvious thing that God would be at work in the most religious people in the city. But when the door closed there, he has to go look to where God is not supposed to be at work. He has to look in the neighborhood he, it says that Titius Justice was a Roman, it's a Roman name. So he's a Roman neighbor of the synagogue. His house was right next door. And he was most likely quite wealthy because he had a house big enough to ha- have the growing Corinthian Christian congregation meet there. So um, Paul, rather than getting stuck up on the fact that people are not liking him, he just looks into his neighborhood and sees where God is at work. And I guess my question for you is, what is God doing in your neighborhood? And are you paying attention? I hope you're paying better attention than I was about a month ago. So about a month ago, um, we uh, were getting used to having new neighbors. You see, we've lived in our house almost two years And we really liked our neighbors. And unfortunately, this spring, both of them moved out. 
I don't want to hear if you think it's because of us living in the middle of them. But we really liked our neighbors, and we were really sad to see them go. And I just kind of had a bad attitude about the new neighbors. They didn't have little kids my kids' ages, and I, like, wanted my old neighbors back. Well, that bad attitude got worse as I noticed they had a really yippy dog, and I was starting to be a little annoying. And then one morning, my bad attitude got terrible. They were apparently gone early in the morning. It was before 7 when their dog started to bark. And it wasn't like a normal um, normal yip. It was like someone, like a strangly, hysterical yip. Like, you know. And, and uh, I work at home, folks, okay? <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to tell this story. And all those... You, you may have been projecting on me that I'm nice, like we talked about, nice. And I'm going to break that illusion right now. So you're going to have to get, cut me some grace this morning. So this dog barks for two hours straight at a, in a very hysterical pitch. And I, I, like, try to talk to it really nice to soothe it. And that, like, makes it worse. And then I tried to, like, talk to it very firmly. That was really the wrong thing to do. Just got worse. And woke all the kids up. Not a good way to get on my good side. And at this point... I'm not in my right mind, people, okay? I'm just not in my right mind. You've heard of the insanity plea? I'm offering the insanity plea, okay? So Rick comes home from an early morning meeting, and I am not the wife he knows. I'm like wild-eyed. I'm on Google, Googling solutions for problem dogs. I'm looking at legal actions that we could take. You know, I'm like zero to 60 here, folks. The people haven't even come home and we haven't tried talking to them. But I'm looking at what our, what our legal rights are. And then I, I know, and then I think, oh, it's a dog silencer. Now that is not as bad as you think it is. It's just a, it's, it's not, it's not a gun with a silencer. It's just like, it, it, like it's something for training that emits like a, 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 some sort of sound. But I don't know, it may be uncomfortable for dogs. I didn't buy it. I'm just like reading about all these things that we could do. Okay, so, and in the midst of all of that, I did something really not nice. I texted my other neighbor, who happens to be a police officer, and I asked her when homicide of dogs became justifiable. <laughs> Insanity plea, folks. It, and it was a joke, but not a nice one. I will, I will say that. And I'm, I'm about to be humbled, okay, for those of you who, are, who need me to be humbled at this point because you have a heart for dogs that I was about to develop. So it was less than two. So my neighbor, being much more godly than me, she got over to the other neighbors and she talked to them about what was going on with the dog. And they were really receptive and kind about working on a solution. So I thought, okay, good. So then like the next day, I think it would have been 36 hours, I can see in their backyard from when I'm doing the dishes and I see them holding the dog wrapped in a blanket and I'm like, oh no. And I, I find out that the dog had a stroke and died. And I, I was so humbled. I felt like I just wanted to dig a six foot hole and crawl in. I mean, they didn't know, but this, I was in my own, I knew, I knew how bad my attitude was, right? And to make it even more embarrassing, I found out that this was a rescue dog 
that they had recently rescued that had had, um, had probably been abused and had a dent in its head and that kind of like the seizure came out of that. Probably the weird barking came out of that. And um, I also, just to take it one more step, it had been the lap dog of grandmother who was dying of cancer who had died two weeks before. And so it was like a double blow for the neighbors to lose this dog. Now, at this point, I was ready to resign as, at serving here at the church, but I went and talked to the Lord about it, and I was so reminded at how we don't know. I didn't know the dog's story, for crying out loud, and I certainly didn't know the people's story, and I was so quick to judge, you know, so quick to be annoyed. I led with that, and I think if we expect to see what God's doing in the lives of people, even dogs around us, <laughs> We need to set our annoyance aside and hear their stories. Maybe God could use us as an instrument of comfort rather than um, annoyance and judgment. I was was very humbled by that. And I pray that God would open my eyes, that I wouldn't be so full of annoyance that I could see what he's doing in my very own neighborhood. And I'm sure that you guys are much in a much better place than that. But just so you know where not to go, I've, I've shared my story. In the lives of influential people, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, he was like a... um like our pastor, except in the synagogue, he came to Christ and he brought, he influenced a lot of people to come to Christ. There's Sosthenes, um, who was the succeeding synagogue ruler that um, he's also listed in the book of Corinth as being a leader. So it seems like one synagogue ruler came to Christ and then they replaced him. And then the next synagogue ruler came to Christ. So there were some really influential Jewish people coming to Christ. Then there was Titius Justice, the wealthy Roman that we were talking about. When I think about, um, People, when I think about sharing Christ with people who um, are significant in the world's eyes, I think about Rick's years um, at the Beverly Hills branch of First Republic Bank. He um, had the opportunity to interact with a lot of rich people and even well-known people. He sat across from Larry King every week and prayed for him to himself and asked him about the people he was interviewing that week and occasionally talked about issues of faith. What he told me from those times, and Rick is so good about where I would be intimidated in thinking about myself. He focuses on the need of the person in front of, you, of him, no matter how, um, how significant or insignificant others might judge them to be. And his, his, his description of that time is that rich people have the same problems that you and I do. They just have more zeros after them. And so... You have something to offer. You know, it can, maybe it's your boss's boss that you think would never listen to you. Do, you. do you ever spend time praying for them? Do you ever ask them what's going on in their life? I think building that confidence that we all, we all need Jesus. And we have something to offer those around us, even when they seem intimidating. In the lives of many insignificant people who matter very much to God, quote unquote insignificant Jesus appears to Paul in this passage, which happens at the most significant points of Paul's ministry. And he tells him not to leave Corinth, but to stay there, even though times are tough. For the sake of people that belong, Jesus says, for the sake of people that belong to me. I find this really interesting because if we could get that same perspective that Paul got from hearing from Jesus, I think things would be different. Um, 
1 Corinthians 1.26 says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. So these were not people that others would think were important, but they were important to Jesus. And he told Paul not to leave because he saw their faces, people that needed to hear about God's love, that needed to hear about the hope found in Jesus. And I, I think of um, my sister-in-law, Madison, Bless her heart, she has taught us lots of things about Jewish traditions because her family's Jewish. And we have found out that there are certain things that they are just much better at than we are. Our Easter egg hunts are pretty lame. I kind of try to be as cheap as possible. I sub cereal for candy, trying to lower the the sugar intake. My kids still think it's cool, but I think I only have maybe a year left before it's not going to be very cool. You know what I'm saying? So Passover fell on Easter, and we had the lame Easter egg hunt. But Madison says, we need to hunt for the gelt. That's part of Passover. The gelt, you guys, is real cash money. Not candy. Not some kind of cereal. It's cash money. And we're not talking about pennies. We're talking about like bills. And so in in this instance, uh, being newlyweds, they just hit a $5 bill. But I guess her parents would hide 20s for them to find. It was making me, you know think about uh, what it would take to, 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 to make our family a little bit more Jewish. But uh, my kids, my kids who uh, can't find their socks for the life of them, they walk into a room and turn around, I don't see it, suddenly show, prove to the world that they knew how to search for things. They're tearing the house up looking for this money that they know is out there. And uh, I'm thinking to myself, Paul heard from Jesus that there were treasures hidden in his path, people of infinite value to God. How often do I walk through my day not thinking about the value of the the checker that I'm interacting with, not thinking about the value of people that are on the road, people I interact with in my neighborhood, people with noisy dogs? Um, How would it change if I saw my life a little bit more like my kids searching for that guilt? If I saw my life as searching for valuable lives that God is putting and maybe hiding in my path, it may be hard to see them at times, that are waiting for me to share the love of God or share an encouragement or recognize their value, their infinite value as a person. I think things would be different if I, looked, if I walked through my day that way. Despite a really bad situation, the government was absolutely not helping Paul out in this situation. Um, It was an anti-Semitic time, which made it difficult for Paul. The um, governor in Corinth called the proconsul. He allowed one of the Jewish people to be beat up right in public. This was not, um, it was an antagonistic time. And despite Things may be very bad at work for many of us, but I doubt that people are being beaten in front of you. If if they are, I recommend that you get a new job. But what I'm saying is, this is bad. It's It's not good. It's not a good place. It's not a good time. It's not an easy time. Yet God was doing amazing things in and through the church. And so what is God up to, even if things are difficult in your home, in your job, in your school? Finally, stick to the last thing God said to you. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God, it says in verse 11. Paul kept going with what God told him to do despite opposition. He had a clear direction from the Lord. Jesus had had appeared to him, and he stuck to it. 
you know, it was, it was a few years back that we had some really good friends who decided that they needed to make an interstate move. They were offered, a, a, the father was offered a dream job in Boise. They were moving from um, Western Washington. And they, put, they had four kids, so it took a lot of coordination, put the house on the market, started to organize kids' schools. They, bought a, they, had, um, they were in escrow for a new house in Boise. Uh, we helped give them a goodbye party. And right in the midst of all of this, they get one of those phone calls that changes your life. And crisis just erupted in their family. It was one of those all-hands-on-deck kinds of crisis with one of their family members. They actually had to call and say, we're not going to be able to accept this job, lost their earnest money on the house, and they weren't looking ahead. They were just surviving. So a couple months into this, you know, it kind of occurs to the parents, we're living off of savings, but what's next? What do we do now? Our pretty heartbroken, trying to recover, trying to survive. And the advice came from their junior high son. Junior high son says, Mom and Dad, didn't we feel like God told us to go move to Boise? Well, yeah, but that was then, son. He says, did God change his mind? Dad thinks about it. There really had been no other direction. He thought, since we don't have a new direction from the Lord, let's go back and do the last thing we felt clear about. He didn't have the job, didn't have the house. They just went, found a place to live, got a job that, that would do for the time. But in the course of the next two years, family began to heal. The dream job opened again, and family got back on track to what God had called them to do. And it started with that pivotal point of saying, Things are very confusing, but what was the last clear thing God told us to do? Let's do that. So back to Rick and my story. We used the wisdom of God and the word of God, like Anne talked about a few weeks ago. And we decided it was time to stay and not to leave our church plant in, in Los Angeles. And things got worse before they got better. Rick lost his job, the job that was getting difficult. The church situation went from bad to worse. But... In the six additional months we stayed, we fulfilled our commitment. During our last year, we had, Rick had the most incredible conversation with his dear friend Isaac, who was a Holocaust survivor. They'd talked about faith for years, and it was talking about Jesus was a hard thing for him to handle because of the hatred that he'd endured at the hand of so-called Christians. And he talked to Rick about how he was coming to faith in Jesus. And that was really one of the greatest miracles that we'd ever heard and been part of. We, another one of Rick's coworkers came to Christ. There were people that God put in our path that we were supposed to love and minister to. We were humbled. We realized we didn't know very much. We were able to work through the relational challenges and forgive and be at peace with those we did ministry with. And some of those relationships continue today. And we stuck close in friendship with our, with our home-based friends. A couple of those were Jared and Ann. They encouraged us. And at the right time, God released us, and we had seven good years of ministry in Washington, and we were positioned after another difficult transition to come here, and we really feel that being here was the assignment God had for us because we didn't quit early, and we stayed through a tough spot. So there are four responses, I think, that we could have to Paul's story this morning, and I just want to highlight them. And it's hard to think about four things at the same time, so would you just ask the Lord which one is your focus point this morning. You can keep hoping for the best with people. 
You know, Paul, it took him several months to see people respond in Corinth. Who do you need to keep loving and sharing Jesus with? Who do you just need to stick by as a friend? Maybe you have a toxic relationship in your life, and God is highlighting to you today that you are just responsible for you. You don't have to shake out your clothes, but you can make a decision to step back from the relationship and let let them figure out their own consequences while you continue to pray, but step back. Keep excited about what God is doing around you. Maybe you just need to be looking. What's God up to in your neighborhood, in your school, and work? And finally, maybe you need to do the last thing God told you. Things have gotten confusing, but God is still with you. And the clear thing is the last thing he said to you. If you're wondering what, those thing, th- what that thing might be, the commitments that we have in our lives, marriage, that's a clear thing God's told us to invest in. Um, if, we are, if you are married, if you're not, that's not your commitment. Um, maybe, you know, it's a, it's a job that's difficult, but you know God puts you there. That's the clear commitment. It could be your children, providing for them, guiding them. It's loving your neighbors like I was learning. These are clear things that God's asked us to do that we can fall back on in, when we're confused. So I'm just going to pray.